0: Well, have you ever found yourself in life um, with something that you are anticipating? Whether that's a move to a place like Hawaii, or whether that's uh, an item or a good that is being shipped to you, and you just can't wait until it shows up at your doorstep. Um, <laughs> Debbie, They've been on a uh, escapade of getting their uh, appliances for the past six months, so they had a strong laugh. So they're anticipating this. Well, I'm sorry to say, uh, Debbie, where I'm going to go with this. But I remember one of the things that I was really, really, really excited for in high school was the new PlayStation that came out. It was PlayStation 2. It was the new generation, and it was going to be better than anything we had ever seen before. I even got a job at Target so that I could know when the game would come out, and then I would be able to wait in line at the right time and like, do everything right to get this game. And then I get it installed, and I get it going, and you know, sure enough, w- what happens I start playing it, and I play it, and then it becomes ordinary, right? right? It becomes ordinary in not too long a time. Or perhaps you drive your car off the lot, and you're so excited about this new car. You bring it home, and your kids are like, oh, it's a new car, and everyone's really careful in it, and they don't spill any crumbs in it, and they don't do anything. And then all of a sudden, you know, six months or maybe two weeks down the road, right? and it becomes something you're used to already right it becomes something that doesn't bring the energy and the joy that you thought it would when it would show up on your doorstep although you might like it it it's just not what you anticipated it to be or perhaps it's a move where you came to a place and you thought this was going to be the time when things were going to change right everything was going to get better when i went to hawaii or i went to california or i got this new promotion at work only to find yourself in the rhythm and then wishing the next thing would come, right? That the grass is always greener, right? That when you hope for the next thing, sometimes the next thing then becomes the next thing then becomes the next thing. Well, I think that we as people have a tendency just to do that. Like it's the vacation is better thought about than the vacation that you're on because it's the anticipation that you're hoping for in the future and i think that this is what is at the heart of the good life that we're going to be exploring over the next 5 weeks until lent series the idea that we pursue things in this life and we hope for things that we think are going to give us fulfillment or joy or happiness only to come to find out not too long after we receive them or we have what we were hoping for that We're longing, yet again, that we're hoping for the next thing, the new grass, whatever that might be. The writer of the book that we're going to be following throughout this time, his name is Dr. Derwin Gray, and he's a pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina, but before he was a pastor, he was a football player. In fact, he played for BYU, and he was an accomplished football player there, and so accomplished that he got into the NFL draft. Everyone's dream, right, to get into the NFL draft and to start playing at the NFL after playing in college. And he said it was only six months into his dream of playing in the NFL that he and his wife were wishing they were back at BYU. Because at BYU, they had community, they had, uh, he had a role of leadership, they saw him as a friend, and he just couldn't understand at the NFL why he couldn't find community. He said he was lonelier than he had ever been there in that place. Only then to find out that his body started kind of, you know, decaying earlier than he had thought, and for an NFL player, that's not a good thing when your knees start giving out, you have hip problems or shoulder injuries. And all the while, he was taking into consideration, was this really what he had been longing for his whole life? I know many of athletes, I grew up with hockey players, and that was the thing that they wanted to do in life, period. They wanted to go and they wanted to play in the, uh, in the NHL. And they wanted. To, they worked so hard. And if you know anyone who is a professional athlete or of the level, even of a you know, D1 college athlete, you know that they give their life to the sport. Day in and day out, they're disciplined and practicing and doing so much. And so my friends, James and Joel, they're, uh, they're twins, and they both went out the route of pursuing what they hoped for. And both of them got into college, both of them did well, it took a journey, they had to go play like minor league college, which they call juniors, if you know anything about hockey, that's what they call it, and they finally got there, and then by the end of their college career, I would talk to each of them on the phone when I was in Japan or in California, because I was in college earlier than them, uh, because they had spent time in the juniors, and both of them had the the same mantra, I'm ready to be done (laughs) playing hockey, right? I'm ready to be done. Because we can give ourselves to something so long and so much that eventually it just doesn't give back what we had longed for with it. And I think each of us can put ourselves at a place in our lives or time that we have done this. Whether it's the moment you put the cap and gown on and you finish the school or you're finally credentialed, life doesn't get easier, does it? Life doesn't all of a sudden flip a switch and now everything that you long for gives you the fulfillment you're looking for. And you see, I think Jesus knows this about humanity. And Jesus, in his most most influential sermon that he gives, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount, begins with a road to blessedness or in the Greek, could also be translated happiness, fulfillment, wholeness. And so Jesus had just started his ministry, and in the Gospel of Matthew, their crowds are beginning to gather, and he's starting to get some attention, and people are starting to see that this guy is a teacher. And so he goes up on the mountain, and he begins with blessed are. And... What is surprising to some is he doesn't begin with, Blessed are those who have done all the right things and followed the Torah. Blessed are those who have kept clean according to the law. Blessed are those who have 401ks worthy of retirement. Blessed are those who went to college and graduated cum laude. Blessed are those who drive a Tesla. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, he says. Opposite of what all of life tells us we ought to seek, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not the rich in spirit, not the ones that are always smiling and always happy and always know what they want next. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I wonder how often we remind ourselves, as we're hoping for the next thing, as we're looking for the grass to be greener, of these words of Jesus, who begins his most influential sermon with telling us, blessed are you when you don't have a thing. When you feel like you're not worthy Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does blessed mean after all? What does happiness mean after all? Jesus lives a life of both blessedness and happiness, right? Leads a life of fulfillment. He is the perfect human. And one of the reminders that I like to tell people, especially when they sugarcoat the gospel and they tell you that if you do these things, God will bless you abundantly with lots of money and lots of things and lots of toys, is that that didn't really work out for Jesus or any of the disciples. In fact, if you think that this thing called faith and this good life that you came to hear about a little bit in our sermon series is about what you can do to meet all of the blessedness, like, you know, the promotions, the status, and all of that, well, you're going to be deeply disappointed because Jesus, spoiler alert to Easter, dies on a cross. And guess what? Every single one of the disciples who leads the good life, dies except for one. And it doesn't make any sense to us because we spend our life avoiding hardship and punishment and trying to attain the good life that we see in front of us. But Jesus sets an alternative road for us, not the easy road, but a different one. And in fact, one that makes a lot more sense to the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. Because many of us don't know what it's like to need all the time, to have what's next, our next meal or our next drink of water, or those things are just taken for granted at some level. But there's something about the need in life that builds resilience and wholeness. I don't know if you've uh, ever gone to a place of a lower income status than yours and wondered to yourself, man, these people are just miserable. In fact, one of the things, I, I, I'm, I'm being, I'm joking, because one of the things that I did when I was a pastor in North Carolina is we would go to the Appalachian service, or Appalachian Mountains, and we would do the Appalachian service project. And so there we were, uh, very privileged. We were like the big steeple, the helicopter goes through for the UNC Duke games. Like we were the downtown, like 70% of the congregation had PhDs or master's degrees. And, you know, like we were affluent community. And what we would go and we would serve the poor, In Appalachia, who were living in trailers or houses that you would, you want to like have a respirator mask in because it had so much mold and all sorts of things that were going on in it. And so there we were, right, to bring them the good life, right, fix up their house, make it cleaner, make it nicer, and we would help them out. We would be the savior for them, so to speak, although we didn't necessarily say that. And I remember the first trip that we went, there was this guy named Arthur, and Arthur uh, wouldn't just let us do the flooring project in his trailer. In fact, he, he felt uncomfortable letting, leaving us to the work by ourselves. And so he needed to work with us. And we would bring him our lunches, and we would eat with him each day. But the thing about it that we started to realize is that Arthur had a lot to teach us, too. It wasn't just about giving back to Arthur, but Arthur was teaching us about what community meant, about what happiness meant, without all the material goods. And in the end, he, he decides to throw a party for our little group of 10 high school students and two leaders, and he gets all the things that he can from the local store, and he grills out and gets all his favorite foods so that we can enjoy our last day together with Arthur. And one of the last things you do within uh, the Appalachian Service Project each year we would do it is we would sit in a giant circle and we say, what impacted us the most? And for some of them, it was uh, the work that we did. But by and large, for the youth that would go on these trips, by and large, it's like eight out of 10 students would say this, what impacted me most was the joy they had was the love they gave. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because you can be poor and be happy and fulfilled despite what everything around us might tell us. And in fact, it's not just about material poverty that Jesus is after, but Jesus is after poverty in general. The Gospel of Luke uses "Blessed are the poor," and it's very, very much associated with money. "Blessed are the poor economically." Uh, Matthew has a little bit of a spiritual element to it. And one of the greatest thing, one of the things that the earliest Christians realized that the greatest sin of all does anyone know it? Pride according to some of the early Christian fathers and mothers. In fact, some would even argue that it was pride that was the sin of Adam and Eve. Because they did not think that they needed to rely on God anymore. They wanted to know what was good and bad and make decisions for themselves like any adult should. And so they ate from the tree of knowledge so that they can tell between good and bad. And the sin there is not that they disobeyed necessarily. The sin there is not that they knew what was good and bad. The problem, according to St. Augustine, was that they no longer had the need for God to guide them in life. And so he uses the analogy of kind of like our trajectory of where we look to get guidance was to God. And then now turned inward, he would say, bent inward where it's only on us to determine our future and our fate. So the sin, according to Augustine, is humanity. He would say man. But man's turn within oneself to see God or direction or where we will go. And I think Jesus knows this, and he begins this important, influential sermon with Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because when you realize you are in need of guidance, what are you going to do but look to God for direction? Look towards others who's oftentimes the vehicle of God's voice in our life for direction. You're going to find it elsewhere than in yourself alone. And friends, this is, I think, one of the greatest starting places of our faith. Oftentimes, one of the things I say to us when we don't have a call to worship is I say, open your hands like this, so we might receive. A pastor friend of mine won't let anyone come to communion like this. (laughs) <laughs> and he spends lots of time teaching about communion etiquette. Communion is when you come to the table and you receive the sacrament of communion, and he, the etiquette that he would try to teach is that you cannot take God's grace. It is not yours to grab and to attain on your own, and so we don't come and we grab the bread like Neanderthals, right? But instead, we receive that the only way to find God is not by taking God, but by receiving from God. And for him, utterly important to the practice of receiving communion is this. A posture of openness and waiting on God to come. And As we look through our journey of the good life, The first step, friends, is a posture like this. Because we try all our might, and I know many of you are very accomplished in your professions and your lives and all that you do. And many of us are raising our kids in hopes to do the same. And, and, are we reminding ourselves and our youth and our children That life's fullest happiness doesn't come from the things we achieve and we gain. But life's fullest happiness comes from what we can receive. Blessed are the humble in spirit. Blessed are the poor who recognize their need for God and God's direction in their lives. So if you hear the good life and you think I have all the answers to tell you what to do next, that would be me telling you I was God and knew the trajectory of your life. The good life, friends, is one to be received by none other than the one who gives us grace and love, and that is God. So let us go on this journey for the next few weeks in hopes that God might give us direction and guidance. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says. So let us begin in our poverty, not in our wealth that we've attained. I invite you to pray with me. Loving God, we give thanks that you did not come to rule the earth on the throne, or through the sword. You did not come as the mighty or the powerful. You came as a humble, poor, Jewish servant. Who then teaches us not how to become the emperor, but instead teaches us how to find a life of contentment, of wholeness, of happiness, of blessedness as we recognize our need for your love and your grace and your direction in our lives. So guide us, we pray, to find the good life, life of wholeness and happiness. And it's in your Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.